Tired of blogs? <laughs> Me too. Moby Lives Radio starts now. Intergalactic headquarters of Melville House Publishing in Hoboken, New Jersey, aka the left bank of New York City, it's Moby Lives Radio. Greetings, Earthlings. It's Wednesday, the 21st day of December in 2005. I'm Dennis Johnson. On today's show, our last of the year, We'll be talking to Laura Miller of Salon.com and the New York Times about year-end best-of lists. She's just compiled the official 2005 best-of list for Salon.com, and we'll be talking about what made the list and why. But first, here's some news from the book world. Well, two major questions regarding the case of President Bush's illegal domestic wiretapping program and the New York Times reporting of that program have been, did the Times have the story during the presidential campaign between Bush and John Kerry, and did the Times stop sitting on the story only because it was about to be revealed in a book? Reporter James Rainey has now confirmed the worst suspicions in a stunning Los Angeles Times report. Yesterday, Rainey reported on page one of the LA Times that the New York Times only decided to stop sitting on the story of Bush's illegal spying campaign when, quote, it became apparent a book by one of its reporters was about to break the news, close quote. Rainey reported that two New York Times journalists informed him that the impending publication of James Risen's State of War, The Secret History of the CIA and the Bush Administration, coming from Simon & Schuster in January, was what prompted Friday's blockbuster revelation about Bush's spying campaign, which was reported by James Risen on Friday's issue of the New York Times. Even more shocking, Rainey's sources also claimed that the New York Times had the story of the Bush administration's use of illegal wiretaps and email surveillance well before the razor-thin Bush victory in the November 2004 presidential election. Times executive editor Bill Keller, however, has rejected the claims while the Times has yet to specify how long exactly it's set on the story, a weekend statement from the Times said only, quote, about a year, Keller says Friday's publication of the news was, quote, not time to the Iraqi election, the Patriot Act debate, Jim's forthcoming book, or any other event. We published the story when we did because after much hard work, it was fully reported, checked, and ready. And because after listening respectfully to the administration's objections, we were convinced there was no good reason not to publish it. Close quote. While Keller did not admit it, Newsweek reporter Jonathan Alter is reporting that Keller heard out the president's objections in a personal meeting with Bush after the White House summoned Keller and New York Times publisher Arthur Sulzberger to an Oval Office meeting on December 6th. Neither the Times nor the White House will comment on the meeting, but as Alter writes, quote, one can only imagine the president's desperation. 
In yet another case, pitting two of history's most important books against each other, that would be the Bible and Darwin's Origin of the Species, the Dover, Pennsylvania School Board yesterday lost its case to have creationism, or as they call it, intelligent design, inserted into its science textbooks. Federal Judge John E. Jones III said the attempt violated the constitutional separation of church and state and that several members of the Dover Board lied repeatedly to cover their motives. Quote, we find that the secular purposes claimed by the board amount to a pretext for the board's real purpose, which was to promote religion in the public school classroom, Judge Jones said in his decision. He added, quote, it is ironic that several of these individuals who so staunchly and proudly touted their religious convictions in public would time and again lie to cover their tracks and disguise the real purpose behind the ID policy. Jones criticized the board for wasting taxpayer money and bringing the case to court and called its decision to do so one of, quote, breathtaking inanity. The citizens of Dover have since voted out of office the board members who brought the case to court. Turkey's justice minister has criticized European Union officials for pressuring the country to drop its case against novelist Orhan Pamuk for supposedly insulting Turkishness. While at the same time, the minister has hinted charges may indeed be dropped. According to an Associated Press Wire report, Minister Semil Sisek scolded EU officials, saying that foreign guests must show respect to Turkey's values and institutions. He also noted that previously the EU had told the Ministry of Justice that it should stay out of the judiciary affairs. Well, concurrently, he was seen as hinting the case could be dropped after Noting that it had been discussed at a cabinet meeting, he said, quote, the justice ministry is examining the case, and if there are errors within the justice system, the justice system will correct them, close quote. Meanwhile, the AP's report notes something unmentioned in earlier reports, which is that on Friday, the day Pamuk's case was suspended for further review, EU observers at the courthouse, as well as Pamuk's car, were pelted by eggs. Semi Idiz, a columnist for the newspaper Millet, commented that, quote, This is not the Turkey which civilized Turks long for. Our only relief is that the bullets fired in the past by those trying to silence others with despotism have been replaced with eggs. Simon & Schuster CEO Jack Romanos has issued his end-of-the-year letter to employees a week after Random House CEO Peter Olson released his. Last year, both giant publishers were gloomy, both in discussing the just-completed year and in projecting what was ahead. But this year, Romanos, like Olson last week, was upbeat. He said Simon & Schuster would past last year's financial results, and he was enthusiastic about the year ahead. However, Romanos, who has been a leading critic of the efforts of Google to digitize the holdings of major libraries, did, not note, did note that he was concerned about digital developments coming up in 2006. According to a PW Daily report, Romanos wrote that he was, quote, absolutely determined to explore and exploit every opportunity that the digital world can offer 
um, as well as being equally determined to do so in a way that avoids technical pitfalls and project and protects the long-term interests of both Simon and Schuster and its authors, placing an appropriate value on our content and observing long-established copyright conventions. Close quote. The small independent publisher of the South End Press has found one of its authors getting the kind of reader support most writers only dream of, especially when they're with a small independent press. Alvaro Garcia Linera, author of South End's Cochabamba, Water War in Bolivia, has been elected vice president of Bolivia. Garcia Linera was elected as part of the socialist ticket with the man who will now become Bolivia's president, Evo Morales, it is, according to a press release from South End, a remarkable moment in Bolivian history, marking a referendum on and a rejection of the neoliberal politics that it says have impoverished Bolivia. Uh, the moment may best be marked, actually, from a statement in Garcia Linera's book, in which he writes of the new movement that, quote, the national constitution of the multitude, should it come to pass, will be the result of long and patient work, unifying trust, mutual support, leadership, and solidarity at the local level. Close quote. Now, it seems, the multitude has indeed come to pass. And that's the news for Wednesday, the 21st day of December in 2005. I'm Dennis Johnson. It's December 21st, and on this day in literary history in 1892, journalist, novelist, and critic Rebecca West was born in London. Born Cecily Isabel Fairfield, when West started writing for the left-wing press and joined the staff of the feminist paper Free Woman, she thought that nobody would take seriously a person called Cecily Isabel Fairfield. And so, from a brief earlier career as an actress, she adopted the name of Rebecca West the passionate heroine she had once played in Isbin's Rosmersholm. Her father was an Irish journalist who deserted her Scottish mother and then died when West was 14. The family moved to Edinburgh, where she was educated at the George Watson's Ladies' College. She would later say, quote, I have always felt the lack of a university education as a real handicap. She started her writing career as a columnist for the suffragist weekly The Free Woman, but very quickly she was writing everywhere on everything from the burning social issues of the day to book reviews for the Clarion, the Star, the Daily News, the New Republic, and the New Statesman. In 1913, at the age of 19, West started her turbulent love affair with H.G. Wells that lasted for 10 years. Their meeting was prompted by a bad review she gave him. Apparently she had called him, quote, the old maid among novelists. Brilliance of intellect and lucidity of style characterized all West's writings, fiction and nonfiction alike, though perhaps she is best known for her reports from the Nuremberg trials and for her book Black Lamb and Gray Falcon about the roots of World War I, which drew on her travels through Yugoslavia. In uh, 1954, Kenneth Tynan described her as, quote, the best journalist alive. 
West always traveled widely, collecting materials for her books on politics, though she had a formidable and restless intellect and wrote on many subjects. And she also had a fine wit. In her book on the famous medieval philosopher St. Augustine and his impact on modern thought, she finds time to ponder, quote, did St. Francis preach to the birds? Whatever for. If he really liked birds, he would have done better to preach to the cats. Though her politics became more conservative as she grew older and West was made a dame of the British Empire, she never lost her bite. Labeled as a feminist all her life, she said, quote, I myself have never been able to find out precisely what feminism is. I only know that people call me a feminist whenever I express sentiments that differentiate me from a doormat or a prostitute. I'm Valerie Marians, and that's this day in literary history. I know my I have Laura Miller on the line. Laura from Salon.com has just posted this year's, what is it, top 10 list of, of books from the year. Laura, welcome to Melby Liz Radio. And let's just go through the list. Okay, what, what, thanks. What's it's the, great to be back. It's great to have you here. What, what happened in fiction? What did you pick? We picked um, Veronica by Mary Gateskill, Never Let Me Go by Katsuo Ishiguro, Kafka on the Shore by Haruki Murakami, On Beauty by Zadie Smith, and in um, the last slot we had a tie between two short story collections. We just found it impossible to pick one over the other. Magic for Beginners by Kelly Link, Mm -hmm. and Times Like These by Rachel Engels. So you've never had a tie before. No, and ordinarily we, we, I mean, we have been very staunchly against this, but in a funny way, these books are um, very similar, mm-hmm. um, or they—they're they, both short story collections. They're both not what people tend to think of in, as a conventional short story collection, and they're um, both have a certain kind of um, mordant, um, biting quality, um, but also in a tremendous amount of energy. Um, one is by a quite young writer, and one is by a, a writer who's been working for years and who has had. A, you know, only a small amount of notice, but who, you know, the initiated really love. I mean, she's kind of a writer's writer, Rachel Ingalls. Mm-hmm. Um, she's best known for a book called Mrs. Caliban, which came out, oh, God, it has to be over 10 years ago. That's where she's, that was supposed to be her breakthrough, but that didn't really happen. And so, um, you know, she's been plugging away. And so they're kind of at different ends of their careers. And the Kelly Link is the first book, is it not? And it's her second. Second book. Yeah. Um, is it unusual for short story collections to make the list? No, we've often, I mean, and, and I have to say, often like the small press books that we pick are short story collections. Mm-hmm. They're sometimes people's first books, mm-hmm. and if the, they're really successful, then they, they, you know, often they'll sell the novel to somebody with, right. you know, more money. Right. But um, uh, no, we um, actually, this is the second short story collection um, we've picked by Grey Wolf, I believe. Um, Times Like These, the Rachel Engels book, is published by um, Grey Wolf, and we also picked um, Ken Kalfas' wonderful first short story collection, 
Thirst, mm-hmm. which they also published. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, and this is the second time for Kelly Link. We picked her first short story collection, which is called Stranger Things Happen, and we just are very, very high on Kelly Link, and um, it just had to pick the second one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's she's uh, sustained. She didn't suffer the sophomore jinx. Nope. Let's talk about some of the other fiction choices. Uh, Zadie Smith, not exactly a surprise. That was a big book. What did you think of it? Well, I love this. I mean, if I had to pick a single favorite book of the year, well, actually, for me, it's really between On Beauty and Never Let Me Go. Mm -hmm. Never Let Me Go really snuck up on me, Mm -hmm. and um, I was really kind of um, just sort of devastated by the end of it. I don't know if you ever finish a book and it has you in such a mood. It was... It, it, there's a there's a sadness to it, but it's so deep that it, it it's not a, really a bummer. It's it's a profound experience, and then you kind of don't know what to do with yourself. You know, that's, <laughs> 7 that's p.m. Like, and you yeah. you kind of don't want to talk to a friend on the phone. You don't want to watch TV. You don't want to go to a movie. You don't want to read another book. You're just kind of sitting there looking at the walls, that's, trying to. That's an impact that Ishiguro has down. I, I've yeah. felt that from a couple of his books. Yeah. So this was tremendous. Mm-hmm. But I think the thing that I love about On Beauty that I think is so really, really hard to find is just this tremendous bursting vitality. Um, uh, there's a there was a quality that Keats called negative capability, which he said the ultimate example of this in a writer was Shakespeare. If someone who is so enthusiastic about all different kinds of people and so enter so fully into their, them, themselves and their lives that, 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 um, that the book just, you know, seems so much more alive than, than you know, almost any contemporary fiction I've read. Mm-hmm. And it, it just really hit me. Now, I have to say that it, I, it came out in, I think, September and had been like a year of just some admirable but not really exciting fiction, and I had not yet read the Ishiguro um, but, you know, the, the feeling that Ishiguro gives you is more of what you kind of expect in contemporary lit- literary fiction, which is this kind of layered, melancholy sadness. I mean, sadness is sort of the trendy subject of literary fiction. I mean, everybody wants to do sadness. Mm-hmm. And, um, <laughs> and uh, Zadie Smith, it's, you know, there are sad things in it, but it's, uh, in, in a way, it, it has a similar message in some ways as the... Ishiguro, mm-hmm. but uh, it, or at least the concluding feeling, but the the feeling of just um, enthusiasm for being right. a human being and being mm-hmm. alive and all the different kinds of people there. Are. I just don't know anybody else who can do this. She has a real joie de vivre. Yeah, yeah. And it's not just that. It's it's because sometimes you get the kind of book that people the code word that often appears in reviews and flap copy is rollicking, mm-hmm. which is like this kind of <laughs> exaggerated goofy, jokey vitality or yeah. attempt... More <laughs> antic feeling to yeah. it. Yeah, and this is more just um, a greatness of heart and spirit and a great sense of humor and intelligence as well. Mm-hmm. It's just a very rare combination. Mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, I, she's really become my favorite contemporary mm-hmm. novelist. Well, there are two more great books on the list. We've got the Murakami, Kafka at the Shore, and uh, Gateskill's uh, Veronica. Yes. They're so very different. I mean, um, Gateskill is, nobody does, like she does, the kind of fractal examination of people's emotional states and Mm -hmm. moral 
morally soiled consciences. Mm. Um, she just is, um, they're not, it's, you know, it's not pretty, but it's not just sort of gratuitously dark. It's, it's extremely honest and unflinching and really about the complexity of, of emotional life. Um, just, you know, the, no character is like any other character you've ever read about. There's just a feeling of a dispatch from just the sort of bleeding edge of human relationships mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. And the writing is very precise, very pure, controlled, very true. And then Murakami is a much looser writer. I mean, you never feel when he starts that he knows what he's doing. And I actually <laughs> had the good fortune to interview him about 10 years ago, in which I asked him, did he know where his stories were going when he started? And he said, no. You yeah. know, that part of the fun for him is to find out where they go. Uh -huh. But there are always sort of slices of this kind of surreal, um, in, in t I mean, they're all really, to me, every Murakami book is happening inside one person's head. There are characters, but they're like figures, you know. It's really like the realm of surrealism or fairy tale or dream where you're really seeing the different parts of a single personality struggle with each other. And um, this is, is more of that quality um, that is so distinctive in him. And he, I mean, he is another one of my absolute favorite mm -hmm. contemporary mm -hmm. writers. Mm -hmm. And I think what he's doing with genre and with stuff from popular culture is so... Powerful. I mean, few. I, I I can't actually think of a writer in the West who is able to really successfully integrate that sort of material into um, what we would think of as as a literary fiction that feels filled with meaning and um, and personal truth, uh -huh. um, as opposed to just full of jangly bits of contemporary culture. Right. Right. Well, um, any any uh, novels or collections of stories, for that matter, that almost made it if you'd had another slot oh gosh well i mean the book that everybody loved this year saturday right. i felt more to admire than to love right. um i wasn't really moved by it and um you know but it was very sort of formally perfect in in many ways i really liked christopher sorrentino's trance but i felt like it was kind of baggy uh -huh. um same with william volman he is a writer who i think is very talented he won the national book award but he is essentially unedited and so you have to kind of slog through some sort of quicksand like unreadable patches to get to um what you know the, the great parts right and i i just i feel like He's not entirely doing his job as a writer because, yeah. to me, one of the most important things, one most important aspects of being a writer is knowing what not to put into right. something. And then there's the E.L. Doctorow's The March, which, again, more to admire than to enjoy. I felt like it's a kind of classic um, literary novel of our time. It's mm. a historical novel, which I almost feel like I'm starting to go off of uh -huh. after years of really liking them. And it's, um, you know, it's got a great concept behind it, and it's really, really um, skillfully executed, and it is it's just really not very engaging. You know, I didn't feel emotionally drawn into it, and 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 I sort I sometimes feel like contemporary literary fiction sacrifices that. 
for a kind of intellectual sophistication mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or a stylistic sophistication. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, this seems like a classic example to me of that. Like there was no, um, it, there was such a distance yeah. from, yeah. and it was the story of a march. It was the story of a thing, a, you know, a group of, a mob of people. It's not the protagonist was the march and right, ultimately right. that's not a person. Right. So that makes it all the more difficult. Yeah. Well, let's move on to the nonfiction selections. But this uh, is always, in uh, for me, the hardest, because mm-hmm. with nonfiction, you're balancing, say, a fabulous doorstop biography that, mm-hmm. you know, probably no one will read except for experts in that person, but they can still be really fantastic if somebody plot you know, prods you to read it. Right. To memoir, which uh, is a genre a lot of people scoff at, but there were many fantastic memoirs. Uh, this was a great year for memoir, and we did wind up picking one. Um, and as we say in our introduction, not the one you're thinking of. Yeah. <laughs> um, then I am very, very partial to um, nonfiction that has a strong narrative element. So uh, it could be the sea biscuit. It could be something historical. It could be a, a, a kind of reportage, but you know the the sort of uh, the story shaped nonfiction. I I think is a fabulous genre that lots of people really love. And actually, a lot of the people that um, I meet, you know, just regular readers rather than people who are in the book and publishing business who have given up on fiction, that's what they've turned to because there's so much great narrative nonfiction coming out. And then, of course, you have books that are full of information, definitive accounts of things, mm-hmm. that, um, uh, or um, reporting about some little covered aspect of, of the world or of um, you know, society mm-hmm. that, that you know, it's fascinating to get a window on. Like uh, last year it was David Chipler's book on the working poor, and so it's just, uh, it's so difficult, and usually at the, that's the, usually with the fiction I have a pretty good handle on it when I go in, and it's, and, and I, I feel pretty confident about my choices, but I'm always like banging my head against a brick wall when it comes to the nonfiction. Well, let's start with the memoir, and when you say uh, the, the memoir you did not get on the list, I assume you're talking about the Didion book? Yes, and right? th- which is a, 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 a terrific book, it's just that Everyone is picking it, and although I generally don't try to take that too much in con- into consideration, because it was such a strong year for memoir, and because um, I um, I just really love Francine Duplessis Gray. Mm-hmm. I, we picked her book at home with the Marquis de Sade, which is a memoir about the personal life of the, the famous um, uh, French philosopher. Um, and a great title. Yeah, I know. And a wonderful, funny, you know, witty, intelligent, sophisticated book. And, and her memoir about her parents, or specifically her mother and her stepfather, um, who were sort of a, a, a pair of... Well, her mother was a white Russian who was became a famous hat maker and style setter, first in Paris and then in New York. And her stepfather was the editorial director of the Condé Nast magazines. And so it's partly a story of her crazy extended Russian family who were all full of explorers and, and uh, viscounts and you know, ex- eccentric characters, opera singers. And um, 
oh, her childhood in, in Paris and sometimes some of it in Poland and then fleeing the Nazis and um, her mother charming the local Nazi commandant to help them get out of the country and then this, like, well, I could go on. It's mm-hmm, an incredibly mm-hmm. entertaining, just gorgeously written book mm-hmm. and um, a little less grim than mm-hmm. the Didion. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that the of magical thinking is very powerful, but again, grief and sadness are sort of a fetish among American writers right, right now, and right. anything about grief or sadness is seen as so much more serious than anything else, as if that's the one serious subject. And um, and so I just wanted to give um, shine the spotlight on an equally accomplished and in many ways sort of more pleasurable mm-hmm. memoir. Mm-hmm. Um, although, of course, there's a lot of grim stuff in there, because mm-hmm. although her parents were in many ways uh, brave and protective, they were also neglectful and mm-hmm. narcissistic. Mm-hmm. What so about that. What about the Blakesley Tulia? That's a title I don't know. Um, Tulia, um, subtitle Race, Cocaine, and Corruption in a Small Texas Town, is based on Blakesley's um, uh, reporting for the Texas Observer. It is a case that many people might recall having read about because it did make national headlines. In um, the late 90s, over 20% of the black population of the town of Tulia, which is this tiny West Texas town, um, was arrested on charges of selling cocaine, charged, they were sentenced to incredibly long prison terms. And um, it turns out that all of the evidence against them was trumped up by this paranoid, racist, corrupt undercover officer who who had a kind of very um, dodgy history. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's sort of an indictment of both um, the sort of racism of the justice system and the, the sort of stupidity of the war on drugs. But it's not a completely, um, uh, you know, completely dunning indictment because the champions of these people. I mean, it's, it's, it, it is a kind of inspiring story, also, because the champions of the of the um, of the people who were um, convicted and wrongly convicted were fellow citizens of um, in the area, not necessarily Petulia, although some of them were, who banded together across racial and class lines to um, find out what was really going on and get these people out of jail. Well. Um the the other book that seems um, to be a, a, a kind of a pure historical saga like this, um, although even wider scope, is 1491. Well, 1491 is just one of those books that you put on there because it's just purely fascinating. We were all raised to believe that before the arrival of the Europeans, the Americas, North and South America, were barely populated by these Native American tribes who, um, you know, lived very lightly on the land and barely affected the environment. And and what most of us don't realize is that there, in the past, say, 20 years or so, there's been a massive amount of archaeological and anthropological research that shows that there's no real truth to this mm-hmm. and that, that actually if you took North and South America together, they were... There were more people living there than in Europe at the time that the Europeans landed. Uh-huh. So we learn a lot of new stuff about, particularly the the great civilizations of Latin America, some of which were, um, you know, 
quite large and sophisticated and well-developed um, before the pyramids were built. And then also just really how many people were living in North America and how complex their social um, relationships were and how much they actually changed the landscape that they lived in, yeah. um, how much land was cultivated, which is really surprising. And these discoveries continue to be made, especially in Latin America. I mean, there are just many dozens of unexcavated sites, um, some that show signs of having been fairly advanced civilizations, um, you know, thousands of years ago. And another um, historical, well, not a historical saga as much as more recent history, Dream Boogie, the Garalnik book about Sam Cooke. Many people know about Peter Garalnik's two-volume biography of Elvis Presley, and this is in the same vein. Um, No one writes better and more respectfully about these these kind of titans of American popular culture, uh, often kind of complicated, in Elvis's case, tragic figures, um, than Peter Garalnik. He's just incredibly eloquent and serious and rigorous and um, and and fascinating. And Sam Cooke was is a um, you know a voice that we all know, but um, and we may know that he died in this sort of confusing incident and um, in a motel. But m- many people don't know, you know, just how how brilliant he was, how um, how he defied the racial categories of of his time by setting up his own publishing company and record label. Um, just what a remarkable man he was. Mm-hmm. And um, and you know, it's also kind of a story of a, a man who. Um, like the ladies maybe a little yeah. too much and they liked him maybe a little too much i mean it's it's a it's a it's a a fully rounded story it's mm-hmm. not you know an attempt to give you a role model and it's not an attempt to give you like pop gossip it's like right. that's what Garonic is so great about right well and that leaves the last book on the on the list which is assassin's gate from george packer uh, last year, in election year, we had a lot of books like this of political commentary. Um, this was one of the few this year. Well, I think, you know, the great thing, I mean, there's so many books about, I mean, there's still a lot of books coming out about Iraq. Um, and some of them are more polemical than others, but most of them are fairly polemical. Mm-hmm. This book is um, a great book for people who are kind of exhausted by being shrieked at. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> and it's very considered by someone who um, is a liberal, but who initially supported the war because of his um, feeling that the elimination of um, Saddam Hussein was a, a great enough good that it, it was worth the sort of dodginess of how we got into it. Yeah. And... Um, and it's and so it's a it's an examination of the whole experience from a kind of position that's sort of not too committed to either side mm-hmm. because he certainly is no fan of the Bush administration and because it is built on his reporting for the New Yorker you also know that it is so <laughs> it's so um, rigorously edited which yeah. is something that you really have to worry about with a lot of nonfiction books, especially about charged topics. Uh-huh. Um, um, the, the the editing process at the magazine where Packer worked, you know, just does instill a tremendous amount of integrity in a reporter. Mm-hmm. So with this, we get 
a very broad scope um, in terms of a look at the conflict, both the sort of intellectual underpinnings, the crowd that we call neocons, and exactly what who they were and what they represent and what the roles different people played. I mean, they're not an indistinguished mass of people. Why they kind of were able to sort of seize the initiative, partly because there's been this real change in the American political ecology, and, you know, no one really has a grasp on it. Right. Um, and then he also went to Iraq and met soldiers and ordinary Iraqis. And so you get, you know, there's just not that many books that go from one end of that to the other. Right. And that you can feel fairly confident that have been reported with a, you know, a, a really serious attention to, to what can, to sourcing and, mm-hmm. and, and accuracy. Well, you have an amazing variety, particularly on the, uh, the non-fiction list here, but on the fiction list as well. And I'm, I'm hesitant to ask you the, 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 the required question here, but are you seeing any trends in, in, <laughs> on either list, fiction or non-fiction? Well, I have to say that um, when I was first starting to think about the list, um, I thought there, was a po- that, you know, there were several books that I thought were possible, in, possible titles to include that... Um, you know, I didn't wind up including, for example, Saturday. And um, what I was worried about was that the list was going to be entirely British writers. Now, admittedly, <laughs> they're not um, your classic idea of the British writer because Zadie Smith is a mixed-race mm-hmm. woman of, you know, of partly Jamaican descent. And, um, and Ishiguro, obviously, is Japanese uh, British. I don't even really know if they have those hyphens, um, hyphenated identities there. But um, they, th- so they're not. You know, it's not like it's um, uh, you know Jane Austen or somebody mm-hmm. you know completely and thoroughly British. Right. But I, I, I was surprised by how few American novels this year impressed me as um, as really um, being obvious for the list. I mean, there have definitely been years where it's been other than that, but I do feel um, that even just reading around books that didn't quite hit the mark, but were still really interesting and that I am looking forward to finishing now that all of this um, best of reading is over with, Mm -hmm. um, I'm just continually impressed with the sort of high level of craftsmanship, attention to story and character, attention to actually being about something interesting and having things actually happen yeah. that you get in British novels. Yes. And that is can be really hard to find in American novels. And is there an easy thing to point to that's responsible for this? Is it uh, I I've, I've wondered about the we're kind of at a odd generational moment here where um, a lot of our predominantly, uh, uh, the, the writers you hear the most about are, are, are very young right now, whereas oh, Britain is still funny. kind of living off this older generation, or yeah. slightly older generation. Um, you, you hear a lot of promotion of young writers because everyone wants to be the first one to get in on a, you know, uh, to say, oh, mm-hmm. I picked so-and-so. You, mm-hmm. know, the fir- you know, the first novel becomes like uh, almost like a sneak peek on a, on a great career. And we have such a such a journalism culture that that prizes that kind of backstage dish. Right. But um, but uh, I, what I think is, I think that the British are less um, 
saddled with a kind of concept like the great American novel. I think it's been a very damaging concept where we have had to turn the novel into this kind of grotesquely heroic yeah. highbrow enterprise. Um, yeah, it's carrying a lot of weight, isn't it? Yeah, and I feel like it 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 makes it forces people to choose between a kind of indigestible intellectual novel and a kind of insubstantial entertainment novel. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, Americans are much more American, you know, literary novels in America are much more frightened of being associated with entertainment. Yeah. And I think it also has to do with the fact that not that many it's not that literate of a culture. Not that many Americans read serious novels mm-hmm. as a as a recreational activity, especially if they're um, not in the publishing business. Mm-hmm. Whereas it's just much more common in England for all people from all walks of life to read novels, to see that as one of the things they do with their leisure time. Yeah. And so I think it's, it's a healthier literary culture because there are um, more people like that um, going, you know, looking to, to literary novels for um, a way to think about life today yeah. and, and a way to spend an evening. Yeah. Well, last question. Um, you know, this has been posted in Salon, which means that people have had a chance to uh, respond already. What are you hearing? Did you did you do a great job or a terrible job, according well, to your readers? I think our first... I think people seem pleased, although, uh-huh. you know, there's always little quibbles, although we haven't had any major quibbles yet. Um, but we did have, I think, our first letter-slash- comment was somebody um, saying, oh, I really appreciate that, and I'd love to hear what other people liked this year. Mm-hmm. And then we had a lot of people coming in to post what they thought were the best books. Which is kind year. of your ideal response, isn't it? You want to you get the conversation yeah, going. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that the funny thing is that for most, most people who are, uh, you know, not book reviewers or in the public, you know, in the media, are wait till a book comes out in paperback. So the books that people are reading this year generally tend to be pub- tend to have been published last year because yeah, they yeah. waited for the paperback. Right. But people are posting their lists, and and I think you know one of the things that one of the things that struck me um, in coming up with this list, particularly with the fiction, is that I noticed by the time we had sort of hammered the list out that we did not have a single novel by a white male on the list. Mm-hmm. And now, some years, I've felt like, oh, we have too many novels, they're all by white men. This year, we didn't even really think about it, and somehow we wound up with, um, you know, no novels by white men. It's not a major consideration of ours, but it would be something I'd worry about if consistently we ne- we only were, you know, putting up lists with Philip Roth or whatever on right, them. Right, right. And, um, and, one thing that did kind of that I didn't notice in the list that people were posting, and this is something that I think you know always bears discussion about American literary culture, is that when um, people are posting their list, and you can tell from the name that they sign that they're men, almost every book, well, usually every book, is by a man. That they every book that they put on their list is by a man. And men so recommend this, men kind of continuing I'm, I'm, I beg your pardon men recommend men well I think they only read men uh-huh. and this is this is a troubling aspect of our literary culture I mean the women who are posting lists it's fairly mixed and um, not only do they read books by men as well as women but they read books written by people from other countries mm-hmm. and 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 with the the men you they only seem to be interested in what men have to right, say. Right, right. 
um, which is um, which is uh, you know of concern. I, I, I mean, it's it's a known fact in the book business that women buy the vast majority of all literary fiction. Right. Um, but um, but you know, it it does kind of make you wonder what's going on here. Wow. I'm tempted to post my own response saying, "All right, everybody has to." pick a book by someone who's not like them. Yeah. Like, do you just only read a, want to read about what people like you think? Yeah. Um, or, you know, it, but, I don't know, people tend not to respond yeah, <laughs> to yeah, yeah. that kind of challenge. Yeah, they, so. they don't like to have to think about that. Yeah. I mean, you have to, you have to walk the line because uh, it's very easy to get written off as being PC. I don't ever put any book on my list for any reason other than it has quality. Right. But I do notice those things, and, um, and um, it, it's, uh, it's, I wonder if these people are even aware yeah. of the limitations that they're imposing on, on their own reading lives. Well, your list seems to be a, a, a doing a good job of, of offering up alternatives to people exactly like that. I guess this is one good argument in favor of, of such lists. <laughs> I hope so. Um, and if people want to check it out, they can go to salon.com. It's in the book section. And Laura Miller, thanks once again for coming on Mobiliz Radio. It's always my pleasure. And that's our show for Wednesday, the 21st day of December, 2005. Actually, that's our last show for the year. We'll be back next year, though, and hope you will, too. In the meantime, thanks to Laura Miller for coming on the program today and sharing her great insight into the fine art of reviewing. Thanks as well to everyone who's guested on the show so far. We hope we can have you all back on next year. And in the meantime, thanks as usual to the crew at Melville House. That would be engineer Andrew Steinmetz, Kelly Burdick, Becky Kramer, and publisher Valerie Marians. Safe and happy holiday to everyone. It'll probably be that much safer if you remember one thing. That whale is out there, man. Ma chambre a la forme d'une cage Le soleil passe son bras par la fenêtre Les chasseurs à ma porte comme les petits soldats Qui veulent me prendre Je ne veux pas travailler Je ne veux pas déjeuner Je veux seulement oublier Et puis je fume Déjà j'ai connu le parfum de l'amour Un million de roses n'embarrerait pas autant Maintenant une seule fleur dans mes entourages Me rend malade Je ne veux pas travailler Je ne veux pas déjeuner Je veux seulement oublier Et puis je fume Je ne suis pas fière de sa vie Qui veut me tuer C'est magnifique être simple
c'est magnifique, être sympathique, mais je ne le connais jamais. 